Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. My name is Carl Michael and I'm co-hosting this show, as always, with my colleague and Untitled Investment Expertise co-founder, Simon. Hi, Simon. Glad to be here. Today, our topic for our talk is institutional adoption of digital assets. And we have a special guest for this, which is Julian Grigo, the MD of digital assets at Solaris Bank. Solaris Bank is a well-known German fintech startup based in Berlin, 300 employees. And I think we'll learn more about it when uh, Julian is going to explain it to us. Welcome, Julian. Great to have you here on our podcast. Thank you, Karl Michael and Simon, for having me. I'm uh, thrilled and excited and listened to a couple of your podcasts now. Glad to be here. Oh, cool. So we, we are also very much looking forward to the talk with you. And let's start the conversation with getting uh, to know you a little bit better. And I think that's what also our listeners would like to do. And our first question is always for our guests, what brought you to the blockchain space and in your particular case to, to digital assets? Oh, after finishing my studies in psychology, I worked in a lobby association for investment banks, issuing um, certificates, which were kind of derivative structures on base investments like stocks and so on. So I was very close to trading topics. What was very interesting and maybe a little bit dangerous for retail investors, these structures that they built with knockoff structures and so on. So at the same time, there was the emergence or let's say yet another bubble in Bitcoin. So also these guys that I was working with were also talking about a Bitcoin, another asset with a high volatility, but actually a base asset without any kind of issuer default risk and, and so on. So that was the first time I got interested in it. And then I fall into the rabbit hole with all the things like decentralization and stuff. I don't have to explain that to you. Uh, it really immediately got my interest. So I changed into a tech association to be closer to the developments in the blockchain ecosystem. And now I'm MD at Solaris Bank, responsible for the business unit, Digital Assets. And Solaris Bank, I, we know them as a banking as a service provider, B2B2C offering, quite innovative. Can you tell us what role digital assets play there and, and what you are doing at Solaris Bank? Yeah, sure. So maybe first of all, uh, Solaris Bank's white label banking as a service provider. So we never ever touch the end customer, be it a business or be it a um, retail customer. We just enable players to become financial players. To give you one example, uh, you know, Samsung Pay, uh, Samsung, the, they build fridges and mobile phones in South Korea. And through our service, they are now enabled to offer financial services across all uh, European countries. For example, with payments, for example, with KYC methods to know the end customer and also for a lending product. And my unit that I am responsible for, Solaris Digital Assets, is focusing on now crypto services. So we are not touching lending products, payments, bank account, and so on. But what we do is crypto custody and also crypto brokerage. Through our service in the future and already now, Players who are not regulated will now be able to also enable their end customers to buy, sell, and hold crypto assets. The mission basically is to enable anyone to become a crypto player. Hmm. I think you are one of the key players, or as banks are key players, in the institutional adoption of digital assets, which is our topic today. 
everyone has seen the headlines about MicroStrategy and Tesla, so US publicly listed companies with their huge investments in Bitcoin. They mainly do it for inflation hedging purposes. Though these are institutions, this is not what we want to talk about today. So if we talk about institutions, we mean today institutional investors. So these are companies or professionals whose core business is investing and managing assets. And what we've seen in 2020, that the adoption has kick-started and the adoption goes across the board of very different entities in this space. I think it might be useful to categorize these entities to see how broad this spectrum is. So on the one hand, we definitely have crypto hedge funds. They have been in the business I mean, already much earlier in the first Bitcoin or crypto uh, asset wave. They invest between 10 and 50 million US dollars and they can hedge so they can go long, they can go short. We have crypto index fund as a second category of players. We might use Grayscale Capital here as an example because it's one of the biggest players in this index fund space with more than 30 billion assets under management. But next to these funds, the crypto and the index funds, we have family offices, high net worth individuals. Winklefoss Brothers is one of the earlier ones. And just recently, the Norwegian billionaire Kjell Inge Röcke announced that he's going to invest in, in blockchain and crypto 500 million Norwegian krones, so 58 million US dollars approximately. So we see also strong movements in the banking space, commercial banks, investment banks. Goldman Sachs started to open their crypto trading business again, going for Bitcoin futures. We have asset managers, we have pension funds, we have mutual funds, we have endowment funds and even insurance companies as potential future investors. So a huge universe. Let's start with a first question to you now, Julian. So do you think this institutional adoption is gradually increasing? It's exponentially increasing or what do you think drives the whole adoption process? And why was 2020 such a kind of kickstarter year? What do you think? First of all, I would say it's exponential with steps, right? So it's a little bit with the retailers. They came in into 17 a lot. Then a lot of people were sh shaken out of the market. And now again, in end of 2020, beginning of 2021, a wave of new retail investors came in together with institutionals. And some of them will uh, again go out of the market once the volatility hits and the uh, market prices will go down. And eventually they will. And I think it will be maybe not that sharp volatility of inflow and outflow of new investors that we will see with institutionals. But uh, this is definitely one thing. Second point is regulation. Uh, it is so important. I see that every day in, in talks with potential partners and also with existing partners, compliance is such a big issue. Uh, they really want to know, is Bitcoin, and, and you guys, you're experts in that, you, you know this, right? All this talk about, uh, is Bitcoin used for the darknet? And is this for terror financing? And uh, the, the question, uh, the answer is, yeah, yes, maybe a little bit, but not by far not that much as, as with fiat and, and so on, and everything is better traceable and so on. But the, the society needs to get used to this new technology. It's a little bit like the internet in 
90s when this became a massive phenomenon. And, and so it's a compliance, it's simply maturing technology, it's a better interfaces, it's also regulation itself um, paving the way, then it's maybe more law firms being able to properly consult in institutions and all this around this is an ecosystem play. And then you have kind of lighthouse people like Elon Musk, Michael Saylor starting to invest in it. You will eventually see some um, central banks in maybe uh, smaller countries with weak uh, fiat currencies uh, tapping into this uh, place and investing and all this plays together and simply um, drives the mass adoption, the institutional mass adoption. Will it take one year, two years, five years, 10 years? I don't know, but eventually we'll come there and all these reasons play together. So now that you've talked a bit about what drives institutional adoption, and I absolutely agree with you on those points, what do you think are the main barriers that kind of still stand where like regulation is getting there, the total size of the asset class, um, let's just look at Bitcoin itself, which is now larger than 1 trillion, it's also getting there. But still, there are certain barriers. There's technological know-how that's needed. Simply understanding the topic is a multidisciplinary task. You need to have the tech know-how. You need to have the finance know-how. You need to also understand how narratives develop. Now, of course, all of this is just as relevant or maybe more relevant even for retail investors. But what do you think are the main barriers here that still stand for the institutional space? Simon, you're right. There are a lot of questions uh, that, that people who are new to this have no answers yet, or it, it, it takes some time to get to these answers. And what is very interesting, and I want to f cite a friend, I read an article about a friend of mine, Annika Patz, she's at BSDX, and she said that if you want to invest in a fund, or you just simply store your money with a bank, you're not really interested in the core banking system. And I think in the future, we will be much less talking about the infrastructure and the blockchain technology, signing signatures and mining and how decentralized it is and so on. We'll much more talk about use cases. And for now, people are a little bit distracted by that. And in the future, we will be more and more trusting this new technology because it can be trusted. And you're totally right with having no answers to this and still thinking everyone must be an, a Bitcoin expert in order to invest in it. Definitely all these technical questions are one barrier. Uh, other barriers are compliance. We talked about that already. Regulation. With more regulation, it is more certainty and there will be more institutional adoptions. This is why I, as a former lobbyist and now uh, working on the other side in the business, I pretty much endorse the right amount of regulation of course it can be too much and then there of course are our internal compliance questions afc anti-financial crime questions not saying that bitcoin is high risk there just these questions need to be answered and and as said at the beginning this is a societal uh, change that we are living in that also is relevant for institutions there's a lot of education to be done and uh, what we're getting there Totally on the same page with you. It's about building trust. It's about being exposed to a system, understanding that it works, maybe also how it works, but not worrying too much about how it works. Just seeing that this thing has worked for the past 20 years without major hiccups at some point in time, and then feeling way more comfortable in getting into it. Whereas, of course, the new is, first of all, scary, and it's, it might change how we do things right now, which is always scary. Looking at all of this, which institutions do you think are going to be the first to jump into the pool? Which do you think will follow afterwards? 
Yeah. So yeah, talking about institutional adoption, it's it's not too easy. I think Karl uh, Michael already pointed out these two different groups, right? For example, is a broker, is a German broker already an institution because it's a financial institution, right? Per definition. So these definitely with retail investors on as their customers i think these companies are very very in the, in the front runners you can see that was square becoming kind of a broker paypal and Robinhood and so on or bitwala in germany and we are seeing this already um looking at um other um institutions and, and maybe corporates i think it's more the tech savvy ones with ceos that are interested in technology and specifically distributed ledger technology michael saylor and tesla and there will be many many following them who else i think it's hedge funds why? Because it's a volatile product or volatile investment with more than 50 million percentage gain over the last decade. I, I calculated, I think, from eight cents uh, of a dollar to $40,000 is 50 million. Please <laughs> calculate and, and prove me wrong. So I think this is just attractive for people having a capability of bearing risk and wanting to gain big wins. And and I think the, these three groups, so brokers, tech-savvy, corporates and treasurers and, and hedge funds are definitely people looking into that. After that will come just regulation needed ETFs, fund managers. I think actually in the end, anyone can and will, any group can and will invest there eventually. And to your other question, Simon, at the beginning, you asked, do they need to understand that? I think through more market infrastructure, there will be help, there will be uh, support, there will be services making it much more easy on the technical side, on the investment side, on the tax side. For taxation, a very important topic, compliance, regulation, law, and so on. So with more infrastructure, with more ecosystem, with more experts on that, it will be much, much easier in five years to invest from your corporate treasury into Bitcoin than it is today. Absolutely. I do think we see rapid changes right now. Of course, they haven't really stopped, I think, since maybe 2016, where yeah, new things are popping up pretty much daily or at least quarterly. And one of the, I guess, already last new things, because right now, of course, NFTs are all the most interesting uh, things. But um, starting early last year, 2020, DeFi started popping up, right? And we saw and are still seeing breathtaking return rates on yield farming, on liquidity pools, liquidity mining. And right now, I think from my talks with the people in the industry, being a bank is pretty hard and making money is also pretty hard. Maybe not with Solaris because you guys are doing other things, but just the core banking business seems like it's not too much fun right now. And of course, you're looking at these new assets that um, where spreads are pretty huge, where there's real money to be made. When do you think will we see institutions getting into the DeFi space, trying to capture part of it? And of course, we see Binance, Coinbase and the likes already trying that, Kraken, Bitpanda, probably, but the more traditional and non, let's say, non-crypto native institutions. Oh, I think that will not take long until they are there. We, you may be familiar with the protocol sync theory that says that all the protocols where there's a lot of uh, TVL, a total value locked. I think uh, Victor von Wachter in your last session explained that a little bit. And, and with a lot of traction, they prove to be secure. They prove to have a use case. They prove to be trusted by the ecosystem. Once we have this, it's a little bit the same with Bitcoin. The Bitcoin blockchain didn't stop 
over the last year. So it was approved to be secure. And the same will be there with DeFi protocols. Take Uniswap as an example, take DAI. It even survived the black what was it, Thursday in March 2020? So I'm pretty sure that we will see institutional adoption and also banking adoption of DeFi. And, and I think that's what we call CDFI, so centralized decentralized finance. So banks, institutions, centralized companies like, like us, Gulags Bank, for example, implementing DeFi protocols to bring the value from the DeFi ecosystem into the regulated world where the customers are. Because for today, we are not there yet, right? You may have a MetaMask account, you may have an Argent wallet, but uh, that's not even 1% of the German population, I would say, not 1% of the European, not 1% of the US. But all of us are banked by a centralized bank, anyone of us, right? And, and imagine the potential that you can have if you link this institution, this centralized bank, like a big German bank, or like us as a banking as a service provider, with this DeFi pool, with this new uh, product, that would be massive. And uh, yeah, I'm very thrilled about this idea. And and actually, this is exactly what we in the end want to do as a banking as a service provider to really bridge this gap. Right at the same time that we are a bank, we are also a crypto custodian and a crypto broker, uh, but always white label and and linking both worlds and enabling a company to offer this service to their existing or new customers and and yeah that's very very thrilling and i'm really uh, following uh, what's going on in, in DeFi. And it's always a pleasure to be talking with uh, victor <laughs> because he's very very close to what's happening there that's definitely true victor is an expert in this do you think this kind of DeFi adoption so staking lending services in the banking industry even with very innovative banks like like you guys is the topic for 21 or more for 2022 or later it's like with exponential growth right so you see it very little already in 2020 in 21 growing and, and eventually there will be the hockey stick <laughs> so i can't put numbers to it this is a little bit looking into the future but but we will see this eventually and we, we can already see even in germany big companies are beginning staking on their own and and more and more young startups are providing staking services also in germany you're right. These systems moved into staking that what we know. Some major barriers, you mentioned it already, and especially since you're in the banking world, uh, stem from regulation. But as Simon also has pointed out in the beginning, uh, we had some progress on the regulatory side. And I think considering banking regulation, we had significant progress. And now, especially a European-wide initiative, the, the Mika regulation, the markets and crypto assets regulation, is going to unfold in the next couple of years. How do you see the, the regulatory space if you compare Europe with US and Asia? And, and, and what's your view on this Mika? Okay, I'm not an expert in uh, US or Asian markets, rather German and European. I think every effort for a harmonized approach in no matter what industry, be it fishing or <laughs> brakes for cars or crypto assets, is always good because it helps scaling. It helps that the best product to be used by anyone in the European Union. So let the best service win. This is why it's it's so important that Mika is Mika R, so regulation and not like PSD2, which is a directive. That means we will have one law for the whole European Union. And and therefore, I'm happy um, to see this approach because in, in banking, it's, it's very different. I think um, well done regulation really 
helps the new technology of distributed ledger technology, um, be it in DeFi, be it in, in Bitcoin, be it just for an investment case or embedding DeFi protocols like I talked about in CDFI schemes. This will just enable the technology and make our industry ecosystem, make our financial industry better. Therefore, I'm thrilled and I'm looking forward to, to have this. And I, actually, I see German companies well positioned because we already have this license for crypto custody. And, and everyone knows that the Mika regulation will be very close to what we already have here. So maybe we have a small advantage when the race begins. No, you're absolutely right. We have a kind of gold standard here for crypto custody established beginning of 2020 by, by Barfin. I fully agree. I think maybe the biggest missing piece in the puzzle for institutional investors, especially if you think about bigger institutional investors to join the, the crypto market. And since you mentioned custody, you said technology will not play this big role maybe in the future, at least from, from an investor decision perspective. But currently, I think it's a highly technological field if we talk about how to safely store and do custody for digital assets. And we see a lot of movement. We saw this big US players popping up. Now, just recently, PayPal announced that they're going to buy the digital asset custodian Curve from Israel for $200 million. US dollars. Can you explain to our listeners what role safe custody really plays in the institutional world on the one hand side? And how do you see the traditional custodians, the BNY, Mellon, State Street, City, to deal with these new technology challenges here? Will they go, will they build their own technology? Will they go into partner? Will they follow a PayPal-like model? They're going to buy someone. What's your view on this custody space? So first of all, in custody, I see a very, very crucial infrastructure and custody will be more and more a commodity. So it will not be the product itself. Like if you buy a, a stock of, of Siemens, then you probably wouldn't know where the technical custody takes place. You may know your broker, you may know your custodial bank, but that mustn't be the one that's really safekeeping the the stock. So custody itself is a commodity, which is very, very crucial for this field because it's about security, which takes a very, very different approach to stock security, right? Let's say, assume you made a mistake in sending yours to a wrong bank or your bank does a mistake and send it to a wrong IBAN, then you can simply get back the money through some calls and so on. If you do a mistake with the blockchain and, and custody there, the funds are gone forever. So Custody is a little bit different technically, but from the ecosystem point of view, in the end, it will be a commodity. But it's a very crucial step. On this tech layer of custody, you will build uh, eventually other services, like, for example, brokerage, like, for example, DeFi applications. Therefore, custody is central. So now to your question regarding the existing custodial banks, I think some of them will endorse this new technology and have built own approach. Some of them will um, sort it out and some of them will be swept away and not have this kind of service. And as I am a strong believer in, in Bitcoin and decentralized finance, uh, I think um, this will be more and more important. And these banks who will not be able to serve their end customers' needs because they don't have crypto custody, will be in the future more and more ir irrelevant in this field. So in the end, I think it's, it's a little bit like the, the race just has started and it will be very interesting to see who will survive this. And yeah, so that, that's my point of it. Maybe my perspective from the last bank is 
we see we have a lot of already existing banking customers or banking partners who are interested in eventually enabling their existing end customers to tap into the crypto ecosystem. And therefore, for us, it is very important to offer especially exactly this custody to them so that they really keep their end customers and don't lose it to a competitive bank that offers custody in the future. Uh, okay, we also did a, a comprehensive study on the German custody gold standard and published some stuff on, on Medium. And we, we fully agree. One of our conclusions was definitely that custody is a strategic lever. And uh, if you are not in, you might gradually lose your customers yeah, as a bank to others who offer uh, the custody service. You have to get acquainted with the technology. And ideally, you use partners. Maybe Solaris Bank is just one partner. There are a couple of customers custodians out there, which the uh, big traditional players can, can partner with. But this is, a, I think, a strong strategic move, which, which cannot be ignored. Custody, I think, is, is one potential risk for institutional investors, or especially for banks. What other risks do you see, and, and how do banks try to mitigate or control these risks associated with digital assets. Do you mean the risk associated with the custody and, and maybe losing funds through mistakes in, in custody services? Or what do you... No, the, the question was more on a broader term. Custody is one, yes, one issue. Regulation could be one other issue. So there are a couple of different risk components for banks if they want to move into the digital asset space. From your personal experience at Solaris or from what you know from partners, how are these big risks normally treated? There are risk management measures which banks normally take to avoid being too much exposed to a risk. Yeah, I see. So, so first of all, I think banks, as we had uh, it already, let's say more traditional ones, I don't want to blame them. There are some traditional banks who are very, very innovative in the market, also in Germany. So what you can see is that education solves a lot of of, of question marks in, in their eyes, but still, you're right, there are risks. So I think choosing for the right provider Let's assume a bank does not have a build-own approach, right? As many custodial banks actually do outsource the custody service to a centralized custodian kind of, this will also be the case in the future with crypto custody. So choosing for the right provider and maybe not opting for a regulatory arbitrage provider being located on any island with a softer regulation approach. That, that could be one point. Then looking at who, who's the regulator, is it, is it Buffin? Are they regulated? Do they have the license? Do they trust the people working there? There are out, outsourcing analysis to be done. I, I see how banks looking at us uh, when we are in talks for a partnership. I mean, the interesting part is we are um, themselves are a bank with other banks out doing the outsourcing to us. So that means that we not only have to fulfill our own regulation, but also the compliance standards of our partners. So what we did is uh, we implemented an MPC provider, multi-party computation, but it's not done by just uh, plugging them in in order to have uh, the key very safely stored and uh, the recovery routine. We have an audited process and this will be audited by our um, auditor again. And I think these aspects are very, very important, info security and so on. So I think there are a lot of check marks that you can do in order to check 
that you mitigate your risks and professional players do this. And if there's one thing that German banks are good in is, is managing risks. I'm not saying, or let, let's say what they do a lot. Uh, if it's uh, successful, let's see. <laughs> I have some uh, uh, examples in the, in the recent history. It may have not been done so well. But uh, yeah, I think and there are a couple of, of um, checkboxes uh, you can, can check to avoid risks in this ecosystem because you're totally right. It's a new technology with new risks and uh, therefore you need to have new measures. So I guess as everything, it's, as you said, it's a thing about education, it's a learning process, it's about adapting. At the very end of uh, each Untitled Investment Talk, we'd always like to ask a golden question, a question where we look a bit further into the future, where we really try to figure out what our guest's opinion on some a bit far out there topic is. Today's golden question for you is, do you think that in about 10 years, maybe in 2030, there will still be traditional banks, especially end consumer facing uh, retail banks with banking products the way we know them today. So will they survive with the entire crypto space? I mean, being fundamentally about be your own bank, not your keys, not your crypto is a common saying, I think. And also with DeFi becoming more and more prevalent. Will we maybe in the future see more user interfaces that are then kind of just onboarding into the DeFi space, just onboarding towards uh, manage your own wallet, have your own wallet? Or do you think banks, traditional retail banks, still have more than enough time to do what they're doing and keep going with it? Or do you think something completely different, of course? Uh, fully up to you. <laughs> okay, I can only try to answer your question very differentiated. But let me have a first shot. Yes. Some existing banks will survive because they will endorse the new technology, they will master it, and they will curve out the big, big opportunities. They will see what this technology brings to them with Bitcoin, with decentralized finance, and, and make use of it and enrich the ecosystem of their existing end customers and, and, and bring benefits to them. Clearly, yes. Will it be many? Clearly, no. There will just be a few that will survive this new technology. Uh, this new technological revolution, and, and there will be many, many other partners, uh, sorry, banks in the future that banks, kind of banks, we may not call them banks, that uh, will have a huge market share. So this will be a huge disruption, but still with a chance for existing players to play a dominant role, a, a relevant role, at least in this uh, field in the future. As we can see with, with many, many companies, look at the DAX 30 companies, look at the S&P 500. There are companies who are more than 100 years old. There were a couple of technological revolutions. Many of them pivoted as big companies and still survived. And the same will come with the distributed ledger technology revolution, but it definitely will also cause a lot of damage to existing players and some of them will cease to exist. This is my a strong conviction here. And, and yeah, maybe to link it back to what I am doing, I think you don't have to build it on your own everything. You can just use providers to kind of uh, leapfrog the innovation, leapfrog uh, your competitors and be at the forefront of this new technology. And, and yeah, I'm thrilled to, to be working here and even talking about the ecosystem, right? Seeing podcasts like you evolving out of, of not nowhere, at least from my perspective, and uh, tackling that topic on a, such a high level only shows how thick and healthy and, and growing our ecosystem is. Oh, thank you very much, Julian. And thanks a lot, definitely, for joining our talk today. That was very insightful. We could have talked much longer, most probably. But anyhow, it was a very, very big pleasure having you here on the podcast show.
Thank you, Simon and Carl-Michael. For our listeners, this is no investment advice. Whatever Julian, Simon and me were saying here is our subjective evaluation or assessment of things. If you want to invest in digital assets, do your own research. That's clear. Other, other than that, we thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show as much as Simon, I, and hopefully Julian did here. Stay healthy, stay loyal, and stay tuned to the Untitled Investment Talk, our podcast about all things digital assets.